0: Melissa, you're so nice and quiet. So great. Shh. All right. If you don't have one, anybody not have one of these on Second Thess? Second Thessalonians, you should have one of these. There's a stack of them up here. If not, you can come grab one. We can pass them around you. All right. Welcome back. Chad, you need something? I need, I need a packet. need a packet. Get what you need. All right. So what we've been doing here is looking at one New Testament book a week for the last couple of months. Come on and grab everything. And uh, we are up, well, we're not really going in order. We're kind of skipping around in a particular order that I recommend. I haven't hit that lately. So here's, here's the deal. The reason we're doing these is to help you facilitate your own personal time reading the Bible. It's my contention that if you just spend, if you read five pages a day of New Testament, you can read the entire New Testament in 50 days. Right? It's not that long. If you read 10 pages a day, you can read it in about 25 days. And my suggestion is you don't just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and walk your way through, but you skip around a little bit. I think it's a good idea to begin with Luke, then Acts, then Romans. Luke, Acts, Romans. That would give you kind of the foundation of who Jesus is, then the kind of part, the sequel to Luke and then the theological framework you find in Romans, Luke, Acts, Romans, and then read a couple of letters, whatever you want, and then go back and read a gospel, and then read, you know, four or five letters, then read another gospel, four or five letters, another gospel, four or five letters, but then save Hebrews and Revelation for the end, because they're just really complicated. They're the, probably the most difficult two books in the New Testament. So, Luke, Acts, Romans, and then you kind of intersperse gospel and letters, and then end with Hebrews and Romans. And you could jump in, and you could do that. You could, if you wanted to do the 10 pages a day, there's still enough time to get done by Christmas. And we'd love, you to, love to see you do that. Um, what we're looking at this morning is Second Thessalonians, which is the continuation. Well, it's not a continuation, but it's a follow-up letter to the letter we looked at last year, which was on First Thessalonians. And the thing that I'd love you to see—well, actually, let's, let's pause there. Just to remind us where we were. What was First Thess about? If you've got your sheet, you're welcome to cheat. If you don't have your sheet and you want to look in your Bible, you're welcome to do that. But what was First Thessalonians? What was going on in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians? First letter to the Thessalonians. You remember this one, Michael? Love uh, for them, like, just in love for them, and then the return of Christ. Very good. Okay, and then the return of Christ is that what you said? Yes. Okay. So First Thess, I would contend that First Thess is Paul's warmest letter that he loved the Thessalonians. You see, the whole letter is just permeated with really affectionate language. He loved these guys. They're very important to him. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is 1 Thess two eight. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so very dear to us. Right? Um, and the whole letter is permeated with that, and Michael is also correct on his second point that a major, major theme in that book is the return of Christ. Every chapter ends with an allusion to Christ's return, and then there's a really pretty significant section in chapter 4 about the particulars of his return. It's often misunderstood, I believe, um, but it's, it's not about his 1.5 coming. It's not about him coming and then not quite coming and pulling us away, but it really is about him coming, we meeting him and him beginning to really not beginning his com- completion his return our resurrection and the restoration of all things that's a major theme in 1st Thess. So excellent. Anything else that Michael didn't mention here that is important from 1st Thessalonians that you remember? 1st Thess. 1st Thess. Okay, well the good news is Second Thess is going to be a replay of all kinds of things that happen in First Thess. So when we look at it, we're going to see more. Before I give you all mine, I know you probably already began to read it. Walking in this room this morning, when you, before you got here, what did you, what did you know about Second Thessalonians? Are there any passages that kind of leap to you or anything you've learned or heard about Second Thess that you want to throw in here before I start laying it all out? Second Thess. Well, you got anything? It's not necessarily the... A particularly well-trod letter. Yeah. Okay. So more second coming. That's exactly right. So first Thess, it permeates the letter and there's chapter four. Second Thess probably actually has more content about the second coming. It's a major issue in this letter as well. Very good. Anything else you guys know about second Thess? Second Thess, second Thess, second Thess. Oh, yep. Idleness. Yes. Okay. What about idleness? Yes, exactly right. So it's a little bit more of a rebukey letter um, because the Thessalonians are just kind of lazy, right? And that's, we'll, we'll talk, talk more about that. Return of Christ, them being idle. Anything else strike you that you remember from this letter? You, you guys just hit two of, the main, two of the three main points of this letter. The third, the third main point is that they're dealing with persecution. And we're going we're to see, see that in here. But here's what I want you to notice. What, what in the New Testament, there's a number of like multiple letters, who gets multiple letters in the New Testament? Corinthians. The Corinthians. You get 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Timothy. Timothy. You get 1st and 2nd Timothy. Peter. Peter. You get 1st and 2nd Peter. Now that's not, not, what's interesting about that, you're right exactly that Peter gets two letters. It's not clear that he's writing to the same audience in both letters. It's not even clear who he's writing to in either letter. It's a little bit of a funny thing, but you're right that there's a, a double tap on, on Peter's letters very much. Anything else? John so John writes his first second and third and again it's not entirely clear who he's writing to but he gets first second and third John then he gets John then he gets Revelation he gets a bunch and so with Peter's letters the first and second is the first and second letter of Peter from Peter with John's letters it's the first second and third letters of John from John but we name Paul's letters because there's so we we would name if we named Paul's letters the same way we named John and Peter's letters, it would be 1st Paul, 2nd Paul, 3rd Paul, 4th Paul, 13th Paul, right? So it's a little bit like the numbering system could kind of throw you off. When we look at, when we, when we look at the letters that are double numbered by the recipient, we only do that with Paul because Paul wrote a whole slew of letters, right? Any other double sets from Paul? we got Corinthians, we got Thessalonians, and that's pretty much it. Okay, oh yeah, Michael? Could you argue Ephesians and Colossians because of their... Yeah, interesting. Okay, Michael's right. So kind of the end of Colossians is like, hey, read the letter I wrote to the Ephesians. And in fact, if you read them, they're like, they're simil- there's a lot of similar content. And you could throw Ephesians into the Timothy pot because Timothy's the leader at Ephesus. So there's first Tim, second Tim, and Ephesus are all part of that set. Okay, so who cares, right? All that, that's all true. But here's what I want you to notice. Of these double sets, there's by far more correspondence between first and second Thess than between the other letters pretty much everything that happens in 2 Thessalonians already happened in 1 Thessalonians. And I want you to, there's, there's, a, there's a significance to this, okay, before we get into what are the particular issues, the thing that gives me some hope and encouragement in that is that Paul writes to the Thessalonians in the first letter, and he's like, okay, you're, I love you, you're the best, just totally love you, however, you're wrong about this, and you're screwing this up, and I really want to see a little bit change over here, okay, He's writing Bible. This is, the Word of God is powerful, right? It's a two-edged sword, and it's going to a, produce a change in his life. And then, it doesn't. Because he's got to write another letter and be like, hey, let's go over that again. And let me, read, let me read up what I said here, and what I said here, and what I said here. And isn't that helpful news? Is there anything in your life that was like, you know, it's all jacked up, and then you read Bible that corrects it? And then you're still all jacked up. Is this, is this anyone else? Okay. So I think it gives us hope that there's patience, that we don't, nobody turns on a dime. Nothing ever goes from like, here's your situation right now, and then bam, tomorrow everything's all better. Has anybody, I mean, maybe every once in a while, literally, maybe there's some moment in your life where there was some major pivot and everything just flipped and everything got better. But in my experience, man, it is a long, slow road to things slowly getting better. And the fact that Paul had to write them back again, I think, is good news for us. Because it means that we might get another letter. We might have another opportunity. And it might be okay that we grow incrementally and not just turn on a dime. Yes, yes? Robin, do you want to respond to that? It's just, parenting. It's just like parenting? Yeah. Yeah. Like he's very much parenting. Yes. Yeah, you're telling me that you had to tell your kids the same thing more than once? (laughs) Chris, what was she doing the whole time? She's no good at this game, I guess, you know? Okay, so here's what's going on. Let me me give you a little, let me make this a little more personal. Uh, You guys know I was on staff at Campus Crusade for Christ for 20 years, and I love crew. There are things about crew that frustrate me, of course. Like, there's things about you that frustrate me, right? But... (laughs) But I loved it, um, and last week, crew got put in the crosshairs. I don't know if you would have any reason to know this, but Rosaria Butterfield, who I admire an enormous amount, I love Rosaria, I think she's brilliant, Rosaria was a, a lesbian uh, college professor uh, in the Northeast who came to faith through a, a very gracious couple and um, has since written a number of books about her journey from living in a homosexual lifestyle to living consistent with the sexual integrity that God calls us to, and it's really brilliant. It's wonderful. She is so, so smart, and she kind of tells the whole story of her transformed life. Well, last week, she was speaking at Liberty University at the convocation. So they have this you know convocation, like 10,000 students come to this thing, and she went after crew. And she went after a guy named Preston Sprinkle, whom I also really like. Preston is not part of crew, but he, he's a believer, he's a, he's a Bible teacher, and he has produced a curriculum on, um, to help the church think about uh, uh, LGBTQ issues. I really like Preston. I think he does a really good job of being faithful to the text, of being gentle and compassionate towards sinners and living in the right space. And Rosari Butterfield, fascinatingly, who... Is herself come out of that lifestyle, went after Preston and went after Crew for being biblically unfaithful. And as I, I wa- this guy produces this video, this expose on Crew, and I, I, I read through, I watched it on this weekend or Friday, and I was like, "What are you talking about? Like, he's busting Crew essentially for this, for being really nice." to sinners and sufferers. And he acknowledges begrudgingly, they're like, all right, okay, they hold to the actual faithful sexual ethic of you know that, that uh, gay sex is a sin and that we are called to live lives of sexual integrity. The only place for sexual expression is within a, a marriage between a man and a woman. is a lifelong commitment. Yeah, 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 they say that. They, they, they do that, but they're just so really gentle in the way that they communicate it that they're compromising the word of God. And I'm like, What are you talking about? We are called to be, we even have this curriculum that is called Compassionate and Faithful. This is the crew curriculum, the stuff that we do in partnership with Preston. Compassionate and Faithful. And my only issue with that, hear this, is when they say we are about about to be compassionate to sinners, That's that's our perspective, that we should be compassionate to sinners and we should be faithful to what God has said in his word, okay? There's only one problem with that. And that is being compassionate to sinners is not distinct from being faithful to God's Word. Being faithful to God's Word includes and requires being compassionate to sinners. He is the Lord, the Lord. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And the guidelines that crew has set forth of how do we approach this, how do we, do, how do we address this, is that we tell them what is true in God's Word of what He's called us to. And we're patient, and we are kind, and we are gentle, and we are thoughtful, while people with homosexual attractions work out their own disordered loves, just as we are patient and gentle with people with heterosexual attractions who screw that up too. The vast majority of sexual sin in the world is heterosexual in nature. Have you noticed this? And just as we are patient with one another on this side of the line, we're patient with those on the other side of the line. And these guys were just advocating for something that I just did not recognize as consistent Christianity. Do this for me. And then we're going to get back in a second, Thess. Go to Nehemiah 9. Okay, Nehemiah 9 is an absolutely extraordinary chapter in the Bible. I love Nehemiah 9. It's, it's, It's one of several places where the history, where the whole story of Israel is recapped in a prayer. And one of the things that happens here, you guys may, may remember me saying this, what is the Old Testament's favorite Old Testament verse? What passage in the Old Testament is repeated more often than any other? Yes, that's it. You're exactly right. It's Exodus 34, 6. Okay, and I, actually I just quoted it a minute ago. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Okay. And then it goes on to say, right, uh, uh, remembering your covenant love for a thousand generations. And then it says, but you don't punish, you don't leave the guilty unpunished. And uh, there's a, he's not only merciful and loving, but he's also just, okay? Exodus, look it up, Exodus 34:6. It shows up over and over and over and over and over again throughout the rest of the Old Testament, including several times in Nehemiah 9, okay? But... When we approach Exodus 34 or when we approach Nehemiah 9 when we consider who God is and how does who he is interact with sinners? The answer is he's so patient with us. You don't just get one swing at this. He comes around again and he says it again and he's gentle again and he's kind again because we're working it out and there's something wrong with us, okay? When you, we're going to come to Nehemiah in a second. When the fall entered the world and everything broke and the whole world fell all to pieces, two main things entered the human experience. We became bad and we became broken. Okay? You became a sinner and you became a sufferer. You became guilty and your life became marked with grief. And these are different things. Okay? The fact that some of you are going to get cancer is a result of the fall. But it's not a result of your sin. Now, Maybe it will be. Maybe you're doing really stupid things that are leading to this. But by and large, you're a sinner and you're a sufferer. Your life is marked by both of these. They're both fallenness, but they're not exactly the same thing. Sin leads to suffering, to be sure. Have you noticed this? And suffering leads to sin. Oftentimes, you, because you're hurting, you do something stupid to try to like, make it better. And it doesn't work, and that leads to suffering, which that leads to sin. But they are distinct things, right? Everyone in this room, has disordered loves, and if you are gay and you have disordered loves, or if you are straight and you have disordered loves, we all need to take everything that we are, all that we are, and surrender to Christ, but the very fundamental nature of kind of the way you're wired may be, and is in fact, more of your brokenness than your badness, and the risk that we all have, and the thing that we do all the time, is that our, we allow our brokenness to excuse our badness, we allow our brokenness to lead to badness and then we rest into that and what we need to do is we approach people the way that Paul is approaching people in in second Thess is we come again and we come again and we come again with the mercy and grace of God to help address the places in our lives that are broken so far so good? you with me? look at what happens in Nehemiah 9 he's describing the goodness and kindness of God, We'll, we'll pick it up Gosh, he does it so many times. It's hard to pick a place. We'll just start in verse 13. But you should go back and read the whole chapter. It's it's so you did this, then we did this, and then you did this, and then we did this. Verse 13 You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. And in their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, You brought them water from the rock, and you told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Right? The blessing of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. And then verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, and they failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. That's right, you get it? God is so kind to them, and then they just screwed it all up. But look at it, verse 17. They became stiff-necked, And in their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. They did all kinds of wrong things, and yet the gracious and compassionate God Gave them another chance. Ray Dyerley constantly calls God. Where's Ray? Are you in the room? What is Ray Dyerly's favorite name for God? The God of second chances. How many times have I heard him say that? Okay. So look at 19. Because of your great compassion, you didn't abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud didn't cease to guide them on their path. On the pillar of fire by night. So he does again. And then he's merciful to them. He gives them kingdoms in verse 22. Made their sums numerous in verse 23. Captured the land's. But then in verse 26, for crying out loud, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. They put your law behind your backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful, awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them, right? But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. And from heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them. From the hand of their enemies. It goes on and on and on like this. Every time they become stiff necked and rebellious, look at verse 30. But for many years you were patient with them, and by your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. They paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are, once again, a gracious and merciful God. Right? this is the gospel it is not merely hey straighten up fix it get better it is that we call people and we're called one another to the standards that God has set and the God who is slow to anger abounding in love compassionate merciful faithful allows us to begin again if you ever if you want to go back you should go online go find this YouTube video ripping on crew for being so nice Just drives me insane. They are faithfully representing the Christian sexual ethic, and they are faithfully representing the grace and compassion and patience of God. And if he was if God was not like that, where would anyone in this room be? Can you imagine if he was not the God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and fifty-seventh chances? Right? That's what I want you to see in Second Thess that he's going again. Let's recap. Let's go back and we'll look at it again. Okay, you with me? Praise God that he is merciful and patient with us. Look at the things that he's going to talk about. The way that I designed this thing is just so you can see. It's pretty simple. He talks about persecution in second Thess, which are also the same things he talked about in first Thess. He talks about the return of Christ in second Thess, which are the same things he did in first Thess. And then he talks about idleness in the second book, which is the same stuff he talked about in the first. He just got to hit it all again, and probably we could have a third Thess, and a fourth Thess, and a fifth Thess. Do we not, Helen? The God of second chances, right? Okay, so let's take a look at them. How much time do I have? Did I burn it all? Most of it. Okay, (laughs) persecution. Uh, Just just take a look in the first Thessalonians. Paul refers to all that they are suffering, all the things that they're, they're hurt by, they're unsettled by. And Paul writes back in this one, and he's like, yeah, 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 I know. It's still going on. But there is, there is a, tr- there's a tweak. Do you know what happens in second Thess that he, what he adds to the party to help them deal with their persecutions? You might, it might be obvious as you look at it. It might be familiar, maybe, maybe not. In the midst of their suffering, what does he make very, very plain in the second iteration of this? Do you know? It is the punishment that awaits the wicked. Why would knowing that the wicked will be punished, in the final analysis, those that refuse to bend the knee to Christ, how does their future suffering impact those that are currently being persecuted? What is the connection here? Yeah, Chris? It would help me with uh, justifying grace to them. Yes. Say I don't need to worry about this because it's a battle that's already, that I don't need to worry about. That's right. So see, if you're suffering, and you're particularly suffering unjustly from somebody that's hurting you, there's an overwhelming impulse, is there not, to hurt them back? You know, you hurt me, that's fine, but I'm going to hurt you back, Right. What Paul is doing is he's trying to undercut that impulse because it is crucial that Christians turn the other cheek. It is crucial that Christians be imitators of Christ who when he was cursed, he did not revile in return but patiently endured what Paul set in his path. We hate that. If you hurt me, I want to hurt you back. And so what Paul is doing is he is anchoring them to the reality that God is just and the final punishment that he meets out against those that never bend the knee to him is so great, so severe. You don't have to do it. It is the justice of God that facilitates the paci- not the pacifism, not the passivity, the pacifism of Christians. I do not need to be jury judge executor because somebody already is. That's what he's going on. So when you read through it if you feel it there can be a sense when we read what we would call imprecatory passages, passages that, that call upon God's judgment, that we could think, okay, yeah, God is bloodthirsty, and so am I. That is not what we're supposed to take. This. We're supposed to say that God is just, and therefore, I do not have to be. I can be an agent of mercy, even to the people that are causing me to suffer, because God will sort it out. If you did not believe that God was going like to ultimately be just, then you would feel, well, it's now or never, baby, and it's going to be now right? You know that phenomena. So when you read it, don't let the imprecatory nature of second Thess gin you up for wrath. It should make you grateful for mercy, and it should stay your hand. Does that all make sense? That's what he's doing with the persecution. So watch that. Anybody, thoughts on that or anything you want to comment on what you see with the persecution in first Thess? I'm self-conscious that I'm talking an awful lot today. I'm not giving you guys much shot. Gina, you just playing with your pen? Okay. Yeah, bro. Awesome. <laughs> The strength in the self to say, you know, I'm not gonna go the way of There will be uh, a reckoning. And That's right. Well, because there's gonna be a reckoning and you don't want to be counted in that reckoning. Yeah, you're exactly right. So I don't know if we've done it in this room, but Psalm you you remind me of Psalm one, which basically Psalm one essentially says, uh, the good guys win and the bad guys lose, right? There's a man, right, and he loves the word, and he stays away from the bad guys, and he's like a tree that flourishes. And then there's the bad guy that does all these things, and he becomes like chaff, and the wind blows away. It's a promise that ultimately, the righteous prosper and the wicked perish. But then there are numerous places throughout the Scriptures where it says, wait a minute, that's not true. Go outside. The wicked prosper all the time, and the, and the righteous suffer. Psalm 37 and Psalm 73 are two particular reflections on Psalm 1 that say Psalm 1 is bogus, Someone's not working, Psalm 1 isn't true. Like The bad guys win all the time, but the way that we work through Psalm 37 and Psalm 73, Jeremiah wrestles through this in a very significant level, the ultimate answer in all those things is wait, wait. Psalm 1 will be true, wait. And it, it doesn't look true in the, mid, in the mid-range. So, what, what's happening in Second Thess chapter 1 in particular is he's telling you the second half of Psalm 1, it's going to happen. Just wait for it. You do not want to switch teams and be like, oh, I'm going to be on the prosperous wicked team. Paul's like, no, 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 because I promise you Psalm 1 is coming to pass. It just may be a little while, yeah. right? And that is how it works, right? It's coming, but right now, sometimes someone 1 doesn't feel real true. And if you, if you are in that spot and you're like, man, I read Psalm 1 and I'm not buying it, then go read Psalm 37 and Psalm 73. They are specifically designed for the people that are having a hard time believing in Psalm 1. And that's really what Second Thess 1 is as well. All right, good enough? All right, flip the page. What's the other one? Return of Christ. Uh, what do you guys know about the return of Christ in Second Thess? Is there anything in here that you've ever studied this or had a dialogue about this one? I think it's super weird. You familiar with this? You got anything? Anybody want to say? Anything? Again, I'm just talking an awful lot. Anybody want to steal the mic? What's going on with the second test? There were people there that thought that it had already happened. Yes. Yes. Okay. And why did they think it had already happened? No so Paul is going to say, I don't know if I included it here. Let's see. Da, da, da. I didn't include it in this in in my notes. But they had gotten a letter here. Go to an actual Bible. All right, hang on. That's why I'll quote it right. Probably would have been a good idea to have Second Thess up on my Bible before we started this. Sorry. Look at verse one, Second Thess two one, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. We ask you, brothers, here it is, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has has already come. So somebody is like faking a letter signing it with Paul's name and telling him that they missed it. And he's like, "No, no, 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 stop," right? So it's like, you know, you get a I don't know, you get an email from some credit card company telling you you've got to call us to do this thing so we can get your passwords or whatever, right? This is that. This is somebody's like writing a letter in Paul's name. He's like, "Don't don't buy it. It's not true. You haven't missed anything." And it's kind of impossible that you could have missed anything cuz it's not a missable event essentially. Like when Jesus comes, it's going to be really obvious. And then he lays in, he kind of puts all this very strange language about this. Look at verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshiped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That has, as you could imagine, that has produced a lot of speculation through the centuries. Who, who, who is he talking about? You guys have, you guys ever sit through a Bible study that answers that question? What, what, what's the sense of what does he mean here? Okay, so the Antichrist. Yeah, but do you have like his first name? Like Caesar or something? Yeah. Various I mean, throughout the centuries, it's Caesar, it's Saddam Hussein. You know, it's. Right, and the, you know, and it's 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 amazing how like every generation, there's like somebody that's like, oh, it is definitely Saddam Hussein, right? And if it's not Saddam Hussein, it was like, uh, it was it was Reagan. Re- this is so funny. Reagan. Do anybody know Reagan's middle name? Yeah, Wilson. Wilson. Okay, so you remember his first name? Ronald Wilson Yeah. Do you know why that's significant? Six, 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 six. Yes, exactly. Right. Ronald has six na- six letters. Wilson has six letters, and Reagan has six letters. Ronald Wilson Reagan is the 666 Antichrist. I mean, there's just an endless line of this, right? And of course, it's funny. People on the left tend to, tend to think it's like the Republican presidents. People on the right tend to think it's the liberal. You know, it's like just everybody calm down, okay? So like, but throughout the centuries, there's some sense of who is this? What, what do you guys think is the right answer? Who is this? What is he talking about? You going to stick with the Reagan theory? Yeah, I don't think it was Reagan. My favorite uh, of those theories, because of the numerology and like how each letter uh, means a number, it would be the the role of the papacy. So like the the Vicker Philly Day, those three words amounts to six 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 in three different alphabets. Huh? I've never heard that. Yeah. Okay, so, and this is a great example. We could, we could run this through. In, in, in fact, we actually, with a high degree of certainty, know that w- this, isn't, this is Paul, not John, but what John wrote uh, about the, sick, the number of the beast being 666, we actually know who that was. That genuinely, honestly, was Nero. He's long since come and gone. Near, that, that there, is, there is real numerology on this, that it, it was Nero who, at that time, had enormous power to bring an enormous amount of pain. The question, though, is Nero's come and gone Is there an ultimate fulfillment to this? And I do think there's going to be an ultimate fulfillment to this. And I don't know who it is. And neither do you, okay? But what Paul is saying is that there is going to be, before Christ returns, things are going to both get better and they're going to get worse, right? There's a degree to which this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. So there will be more and more people around the world that know the name of Christ and as the world spins on, there will be more and more evil. It gets better and it gets worse. And that's exactly what we see, what we've seen throughout all of history, right? Things are getting better and things are getting worse. But in Second Thess 2, he's reminding them of the things that he had taught them in the past, right? That something has to happen for the one that holds back evil needs to stop holding back the evil. There will be some degree, and I don't know the particulars of it, but some degree to which the God who restrains sin, who holds back wickedness, is going to give the world over. And this is not a new thing. This is what he's been doing. This is Romans 1, right, that God gives us over to our sin. He's like, all right, have at it. We'll see how that works out. And that it, that is going to happen at a more cosmic scale, that he's going to step back and he's going to allow sin to have this reign until he ends the game. It's, look at verse 8. Then the lawless one, which I do take to be Antichrist figure, the final Antichrist figure, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The picture here is that things are going to get bad and they're going to seem so bad that there is no hope. And then when Jesus comes, it's like no contest. It's just no contest. I would say the best cinematic depiction of this, probably, that I've seen. Would be the way that uh, what, what happens in Lord of the Rings? If you know the scene at Helm's Deep, is that how many of you guys have either read or seen Lord of the Rings? Do you remember the Helm's Deep thing? That's the castle fortress thing, and there's a million orcs, just like infinite numbers of orcs, and they're coming over the wall with ladders, and there is no hope, and Legolas is shooting arrows, and Gimli's swinging an axe, but there's just too many, and they're going to lose. And then what happens? <laughs> Gandalf, look to the east, and Gandalf comes over the thing, and he's no longer Gandalf the gray, he's Gandalf the white, and it's like, everybody dies. You know, it's just instant victory from the, from the edge of defeat. That, I, I'm sure that Tolkien, Tolkien, doesn't like, Tolkien likes to not write, um, what do you call the thing that Lewis did? Uh, allegory. He would say it's not an allegory, but a, come on, Tolkien, we know what you're doing here, right? That, that scene is... The return of Christ. I mean, it's nothing else besides that. And that's what we see here. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it is man, it's going to get bad. It's going to be really rough. And then when Christ comes, it's just over. And wickedness is put down. And that's what, it's, that's what he's writing. He's writing to people for whom this isn't theory, they are suffering and they are feeling the power of wickedness in their midst, they're being persecuted. In really painful ways and he's encouraging them that when the game ends it's going to end really really well and it's going to be glorious and there may be times in our lives too that we need to read these passages and be reminded that at the end of the day someone will be true at the end of the day he will be victorious even when you're experiencing the way that the righteous suffer make sense okay that's all very cheerful and encouraging for them it's all good news but there's one more thing and the Thess- that the Thessalonians are getting wrong. We saw it in the first letter. Look at the first letter. Go to the bottom of the back page. Here's from First Thess. Paul says, Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. Paul's not just bragging about how hard he works. He's modeling. He's drawing their attention to what they've observed so they'll notice it. Then he says, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. We ask you, brothers, respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. First Thess, which is, all that is to say that First Thess had a large number of warning statements about you being lazy. It had a large number of admonitions to work hard. and had things of, notice our example that we work hard. Do you guys happen to know why were the Thessalonians not working hard? Or what was the, how does that link to other aspects in the letter? Kelly? Jesus is coming back. That's exactly right. If Jesus is coming back, like tomorrow, why bother to plant crops today? Right? So they're, they're, they're living in a sense of they're, their kind of jacked-up eschatology is producing kind of this, they'll just hang out. It's fine. Jesus is coming. You don't, you don't need to mess with it. You don't need to do anything. He's like, no, nah, he is coming. But in the meantime, get to work. And it doesn't fix it. Okay, Robin? Does it have anything to do back when the church was coming together and people were selling land and everybody was taking care of everybody? Yeah, this. And by all kind of deal. And... Do you think they had that kind of attitude? Yeah, and, and, and you're right. So Robin's referring to, in early Acts, as Peter begins the church, they had this, sometimes, sometimes the, the claim is made that the Bible was communistic or, social, or the New Testament church was communistic or socialistic. And it's a reasonable thing to think because what you're seeing is the pooling of resources. It's not really accurate because socialism and communism are state-enforced phenomena where the state is redistributing the wealth. What Peter experimented with was not that, the, not that the state or even the church leadership is like redividing wealth, but that everybody is just person to person sharing with one another. And so that was the way it started there. You never see it again after like Acts 5. It never, it, it, just, it never shows up in Paul's letters. It's pretty clearly it was a failed experiment, right? The level of sharing of resources, it just doesn't work. Human nature is such that it doesn't work. It didn't work then, and it really hasn't worked anywhere since. So rather than that, what we're called to is a life of generosity, that We share with one another. We're, we're mindful of the needs of others. We consider others' needs as more important than our own. But we still maintain private ownership of our stuff, right? The Thessalonians were probably trying to live in that, and they were certainly dependent on others. And Paul's like, stop it. You're all wanting to be the receivers. and not, nobody, nobody can be the givers if nobody's going to work. So you need to work, not just so you'll have things for yourself, but you need to work so that you'll have things for other people to have, right? Right? Um, Take a look at how he's going to do it in the second letter. All these things are said, but listen, listen to the second letter. He says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have a right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. And then he says, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busybodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Right? So there was a culture in Thessalonica that Paul's like, even when we were there, you guys were like this. And we talked about it when we were there. Then I wrote you a letter about it, and apparently it's not gotten any better. So here's another letter, right? Watch again, like, just takes, it takes a while, right? It takes multiple taps to finally break through and try to fix us. You get multiple taps, but, but we need them. And we are to be these kind of people. We are to work not just so that we are not dependent on others, but so that we ourselves can be generous, so that we will have something that we can share with others who are in genuine need, right? And look at, look at what he did. We didn't, we didn't talk about this last week, but look at that first, that's 514, the very last thing on the page. He says, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. That's a really, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Some people need to be warned. Hey, knock it off. Like, stop it, right? But some people need to be encouraged, and some people need to be helped, right? And in fact, probably you, in different circumstances and at different times, sometimes you need a warning, right? Hey, tighten up. Sometimes you need some help. And sometimes you need to be, uh, uh, you need to be encouraged. Different, different things at different times in our lives. But for the Thessalonians, they had a pervasive inclination away from work. And so this is going to be more on the warn them, kind of put a boot up their butt a little bit, you know? Um, culturally was this written just to men Uh, no I've never thought that the letters that's interesting Um, what makes you ask that question I don't think so why why would you say that now we ask you brothers to respect the work but were men the workers and women the stay at homers or how did did that Mm. Um, so Paul's letters he very often will use just the, the term that we translate as brothers I'd have to look I don't remember offhand if that is actually like a gender ambiguous term, kind of like we would say all men are created equal, right? And we know, or like, you know, when Neil Armstrong steps on the moon and he says, you know, one small step for man or whatever, like you were included in that, right? So there's a sense in which we use the male to represent the humanity. Um, But his letters frequently make reference to specific women Sometimes are actually Phoebe is the one who delivers it, so I don't think we would say that's just to men. So I would assume that brothers, we could rightly say that's brothers and sisters. Um, I I would not assume that he is advocating for like an America in the nineteen fifties kind of a framework of d- the division of labor. It, within the Bible, you'll see, you know, maybe maybe the most famous text that that we tend to apply for women is Proverbs 31, and that she has a job. She's, she's, she's purchasing property. She's engaging in things. So, I don't, I don't think that Paul is making that kind of a case in that passage, um, but I could look to see if the brothers there is actually male persons or just the gathered community of believers. Okay, we're over time. I got to stop talking. So, Read first test, read second test. Next week, we have no Sunday school, upstairs or downstairs, for Thanksgiving break. Um, and so we will pick it up with Timothy the week after. Thanks for coming.